2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter content for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up for the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His descendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up to eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. 
Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rebah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rebah and taken his water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will not be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rebah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labour with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick making. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then him, sorry, then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Thanks, Janine. Morning, everyone. My name's Gav. I am the lead pastor for our other morning congregation that meets at Gladswood Hills. And it's my great pleasure to be here with you this morning and uh, my privilege to open God's word with you. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Loving Father and Almighty God, we pray now that you work in us all by your Holy Spirit. Please clear our mind of distractions. Help us to focus on your word here, your true and good word. Uh, Change us to be more like Jesus just a bit. This morning we pray in his name. Amen. Well, 15 years ago, I worked in the fire protection industry. Uh, You know, smoke detectors and fire extinguishers and sprinklers and fire doors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Stuff that hopefully keeps you safe uh, in a fire. And we had this one building that we maintained in Vaucluse. It was quite old. Vaucluse is an exclusive suburb in the city. Uh, Right on the water, this building, like a 20-storey apartment block, looked out to the ocean. It was pretty much on a cliff. It was gorgeous. And it had no fire protection system in it at all because it was old. The last two decades... The council has been requiring old buildings to come up to current spec when it comes to fire protection. So we did a quote for an installation, a sizable quote for a building that big, fire doors, smoke detectors, extinguishers, and all that kind of thing. And their body corporate unanimously agreed they should do it except for one guy. One guy said, I've been living here 40 years, we've never had a fire, you're just trying to rip us off. And he stubbornly and willfully opposed us at every turn. My boss talked to him time and again for six months, but he would not allow the fire protection system to be installed. Well, he had a fire in his unit, didn't he? He fell asleep. There was an electrical short. Uh, His wife had gone out shopping after he fell asleep. There was a fire in his unit, and he woke up dazed and confused in the smoke, He ran out of the apartment, but then he realised he didn't have his wife, so he ran back into the apartment, looked for his wife, was overcome with smoke. Fire brigade arrived, busted his apartment door down with axes and dragged him out, and he lived. And he wasn't stubborn and willful after that anymore. (laughs) He was our biggest fan after that, and he was our greatest help in, uh, in the logistics of getting the system installed. His arrogance and stubbornness were shattered by that fire. It took something dramatic for him to realise that he was wrong and he really needed this thing to protect him. Now, last week when Ben preached, we saw that same stubborn, willful arrogance in King David, didn't we? What a tragedy. And devastatingly, he went on to use his stubborn arrogance and his kingly power to commit adultery and then to commit murder to try to cover it up, which, of course, he failed because God sees all things. And this week we see God go to extreme measures to shatter his 
arrogance, and stubborn willfulness. And if I've got some questions for us to perhaps consider, you might have others, but here's some questions worth considering this morning uh, as we look at God's word. We need to consider, do we deeply appreciate the kindness and mercy of God or are we a bit stubborn and we a bit complacent in the face of God's goodness to us? Do we take God for granted ourselves? Worse, are we arrogantly and willfully sinning ourselves at the moment in some way, thinking, foolishly, there'll be no consequences? And if we sin, if we go about our business ignoring God, what are the consequences? Well... If you are here last week, you'll know that the context for this part of God's true word is this devastating turn of events in chapter 11. King David, the one who God has blessed with victory over all his enemies, the one who sought to be a blessing to those inside the kingdom and outside the kingdom of Israel, has fallen into sin and in the most spectacular of fashions, lusting after Bathsheba as she appropriately bathes on a rooftop nearby, David committed adultery with her, had her husband murdered, and then took her, the wife of another man, to be his own. And the deeper horror, if that were possible, is just how calculating and unrepentant David was at every turn. All these steps took time, and they took calculation, and they took other people to achieve them. It was so calculated, so ruthless, so evil. Well, it's been a year since David's despicable act and he's shown no sign of remorse that we're aware of and God decides to act against him. God is a God of justice and that's precisely what we see here in this passage. Justice is done and it may surprise you the way in which it's done in several ways. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront the king in his sin And Nathan does this initially by fashioning a story to reveal David's gross sin to him. And this is the story. There were two men in a certain city, looking at verse 1. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. But one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel, his food, and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own extensive flock or herd to prepare for the guests who come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it, killed it for the man who had come to him, the traveller. Now the story is genius, and it ensnares David brilliantly. And a few things to notice from this brilliant story. Notice the rich man had flocks. They were given to him. He was blessed with this abundance of wealth. But the one ewe lamb that the poor man had, he had bought with his own money. And he loved it dearly. It ate the food from his plate. It drank the drink from his cup. It even slept in his bed. He treated it like his very own child. And I'll bet there's people in the room with dogs and cats who can relate very closely to the poor man uh, right now. Now, obviously, Uriah is representative of the poor man, David, representative of the rich man, and Bathsheba is represented by the lamb. In the story, Uriah treasured her dearly. She was his everything to him. And notice the poor man is a giver. He gave food, gave drink, gave his bed, These are the three things that Uriah the Hittite refused to have 
offered to him by David out of honour and out of diligence to his army. Go home, David said. Go down to your house, David said to Uriah, trying to trick him into sleeping with Bathsheba to cover over David's sin. Go to your house, wash your feet, which means eat, drink, lay with your wife. Uriah refused. He slept at the king of the door's house with all the servants of his lord. He did not go to his house. David said, Uriah, why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and the Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Job and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and lay with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing out of honour, out of righteousness, as a soldier in David's army. Uriah was a good and righteous man who wanted little in life and gave a lot. Back to the story. There came a traveller to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd prepare for the guests, but he took the poor man's lamb. The rich man took the one lamb the poor man owned and loved dearly, prepared it, he killed it, cooked it and fed it to this random traveller. Now, how's the king going to respond to this scandalous story, random story, he thinks? Well, the king blows his top. He totally overreacts. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said, as the Lord lives, this man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, a couple of things to note. This is the king. He's the one who, he's the the justice deliverer extraordinaire in the land. And he's just declared a punishment that is completely over the top, actually. Under Levitical law, the punishment for stealing someone's lamb was actually fourfold restitution. You had to pay them back four times. It wasn't death. And secondly, and most importantly, where does David get off? Judging another for a crime when he's yet to judge himself for a much, much more heinous crime. Enter the prophet Nathan again. You're the man! You're that guy! And worse. You're that guy on steroids. You're that guy times a thousand. Sad as it was that the rich man in the story killed a lamb, which it is, but it's just a lamb, David stole his neighbour's wife and killed her husband and then has the audacity to point the finger to the rich man in the story. I wonder, can we too be quick to judge others and slow to judge ourselves? I know I can. I know it makes it easier to live with our own shortcomings, doesn't it? If we keep our gaze fixed on others and the things they're doing wrong rather than looking in the mirror and seeing what we're doing wrong. But you can see the hypocrisy, can't you, here in the passage of David, who's done this terrible crime and then points the finger at this other man whose crime is bad but far, far uh, lighter than David's. How can we change our hearts if, if we're like that? And perhaps you're not, and I hope you're not. How can we be slow to judge others and quick to judge ourselves? Well, let's read on. Nathan now proceeds to hand down the judgment of the Lord in two parts. 
And this is possibly the most dramatic scene in the history of the world, aside from our Lord on the cross. This is God's chosen anointed king, chosen to rule over his precious flock. It's beyond a tragedy that he behaved in this way, a devastation that God's judgment must fall upon his chosen anointed king who he loves dearly. But our God is a just God and will not allow sin to go unpunished. So firstly, we have the judgment for the murder of Uriah and then after that, the judgment for the adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan starts out by reminding David of all that God has given him. Friends, the first step to contentment and the best guard against coveting is to remember all that God has given us and be thankful on a daily basis. Look at verse 7 again with me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, notice the eyes, the, the emphatic eyes from the Lord. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the sand, hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If this was too little, I would have added to you as much again, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God anointed him, delivered him, gave him and would have given him more. In return, David despised the word of the Lord and in doing so, despised God himself. The sons of Eli behaved with the same wickedness toward the Lord right at the back of, front of uh, 1 Samuel. And the judgment on them was this. God said to them, Far be it from me, for those who honour me I will honour, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. They shall have little blessing from me. And we'll see that God's immensely rich blessing to David will now pass to another. And the question we're asking is, will God remove his blessing from David entirely? Will he revoke his promise that David remain his chosen anointed one? Is it all going to go? Is David going to lose his life? It would be right to do so under Levitical law. Murder deserves death under Levitical law. He certainly deserves to be cast out of God's kingdom, does he not? Well, God's first pronouncement of judgment was that the sword shall never leave David's household. It was with the sword that David took Uriah's life and it will be with the sword the trouble and calamity shall now enter his household and never leave. That is the judgment for his murder. Secondly, David is judged for his adultery. Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house. I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbour and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, in the sight of the world. 
For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Astonishingly, Nathan replied, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Blessing turns to punishment as God promises that he will raise up evil. God promises he will raise up evil in place of blessing out of David's own house. His wives will be taken from him and given to other men. And although David's adultery was committed in secret, this will be done for all to see, all Israel, even the sun in the sky to see. And finally, finally, David repents of his sin. Finally. Oh my goodness. This is what it took. And we ought to feel no pity for David whatsoever. None. God's judgment is just, and David brought it upon himself. His conscience did not bring him to repentance after he met with Bathsheba and he went again, went ahead and slept with her anyway. Did she plead him to stop? Did she say, I'm a married woman? Well, his conscience didn't intervene. He did not repent at that point. After he slept with Bathsheba, the next morning he awoke and he did not repent of his sin. Twice he tried to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife, but he refused and he did not repent of his sin. He had Uriah killed at the hands of his enemy, and still he did not repent of his sin. The news came to him, Uriah is dead at your hand, and he did not repent of his sin. A year of contemplation, staring at Bathsheba across the breakfast table, and still he didn't repent of his sin. It took the shattering word of God to bring his hardened heart to its knees as he rightly exclaimed, finally, I have sinned against the Lord and against Bathsheba and against Uriah, of course, and against his kingdom, but most devastatingly against the Lord. In the rest of 2 Samuel, we see the tragic Horrific events unfold as a result of David's sin as his household goes to pieces around him. Now, God's first judgment for David's adultery was he would lose his wives. His second is that the child conceived out of this evil act must die. God inflicted the baby with an illness and at seven days old, as David sat beside the child and wept and prayed, the child died. This is tough, isn't it? And you might have lots of questions. I've certainly got a few questions. Is that fair that the child dies? Shouldn't David die instead? The child was innocent. 
How come a child had to die? We've got lots of questions at this point. And I've got some thoughts that may well be inadequate <laughs> to satisfy our consciences at this point. And that's okay. That's okay. But here goes. In one sense, David did cop it. He had the brutal reality of watching his child suffer and die as a consequence of his own sin, verses 15 to 23. Now, we know that all of our lives, before we're born, after we're born, after we die, are in the gracious hands of a loving God. A good, just and loving God. And he would have done with that child whatever was good and just. Who are we to question when and why God gives life and God takes it away? This is the devastating effect that sin can have and had. Tragically, this child represents the absolute disdain and abuse and dishonouring of the God of the universe. David was God's anointed king and he went and despised God so deliberately and dramatically the fruit of his sin must end in order to restore honour to God. It's hard and it's harsh and it's probably unsatisfying for your questions I know but we think very individualistically today. We think of the rights of the child, and rightly so, rightly so. But we must see the broader picture of God's glory, David's household, David's sin. And we must cling to God's goodness and trust his decision here, I think, as always. And as we press on to the end of the passage, we again see the extraordinarily gracious character of God on display once more. Look again with me at verse 13. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Here we see God's amazing grace. We've seen the consequences of sin and now we see the grace amidst the consequences of sin. Despite David's terrible crime, which deserves death, God is gracious to his anointed one, as he, always, as he always has been. God accepts David's genuine repentance. He pardons his sin and he grants him life where he deserved death. Does that sound familiar? Grants him life where he deserved death. Moreover, God again grants him victory as he promised, at the hands of his enemies, the Ammonites. And we're not going to look at 26 to 31 in depth today for the sake of brevity. But the great jewel in God's graciousness to David is God working not only to keep his promises that a saviour will come from the line of David, but God brings about his glory through human wickedness. Can you see that? We ought not sin as followers of Jesus, but God is so good and so glorious he can bring about his good despite our sin. And this is what he does. He brings about his good and his glory through David's heinous crime. Verse 24, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. She would have been miserable. She lost her baby. He went into her and he lay with her and she bore a son later on and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. 
and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So God called his name Jedidiah. No doubt Bathsheba was grieved at the loss of their son and David, with his heart restored now, he's got a heart again, comforts his wife, rightly so. And they had another child, a son, who they named Solomon. God named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. Clearly, God's blessing had passed from David to his son Solomon. And Solomon, as many of you will know, will become the wisest and wealthiest king the world has ever seen. Friends, what does this all mean for us? Well, firstly, sin is never worth it. Sin is never worth it. Sin impacts us. It impacts those we love. And most of all, it despises God's goodness. And in doing so, it despises God himself. Sin happens when we stubbornly and willfully distrust God and despise his goodness to us. When we forget all we have from God, we lose contentment. And then we go to great lengths to get contentment back. Our world calls it Happiness. We call it contentment, joy in the Lord. You can have joy and contentment when you're sad and when things are going bad. If your trust is in the Lord. And you won't be tempted to sin to make things right, whatever they are, for you, for those around you, if your trust is in the Lord. And you're thankful to him each day for his good gifts towards you. David forgot about his God. God is not mentioned in chapter 11, barely at all. David forgot about his good God who loves him. Friends, practice thankfulness each and every day when things are going bad, when things are going good. Practice thankfulness to God. That will go go a long way to guarding you from sin. Find your deepest satisfaction in God, in his saving son, in his guiding Holy Spirit rather than in the fleeting things of this world, which come and go, which go well and poorly. God is a just God who will not let sins go unpunished. And we've seen that today. Sin can have devastating consequences for our lives and those we love. And to continue down that path leads to judgment. But what if we do sin, which we all do, right? What happens? Well... very last slide. The last slide says, repentance is always worth it. There it is. Repentance is always worth it. David sinned and the consequences were grave and I shudder to think what the consequences might have been if he hadn't repented when he did, but he did. He did repent and God was gracious. That's what God does. When we repent of our sin, God is good. He blesses us most clearly. He blesses us through the Lord Jesus. He grants us eternal life. When our faith is in Christ. Though we deserve death as David did, God blesses us with life as he did for David. If our trust is in Jesus, God allows us to live as he did David. He blessed David again with victory over his enemies. 
he blessed him with a son, the continuation of his family line, and his son would grow to be the greatest king, even greater than his father. Repentance is always worth it. Sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to blessing. Sin leads to judgment, but repentance leads to blessing. That much seems very clear to me from this passage. We must read God's word with an open heart, allow it, allow it to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us, even to shatter us in our sin, if that's where we're at, so that it might lead us to repent of our sins and again receive God's blessing. Repent of your sin. Receive forgiveness from God and know his blessing upon you. Let me pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you. You are so good and so kind and so patient with stubborn people like us, forbearing our sins. You are slow to anger. But God, you are also just and the mighty ruler of the universe. God, work in our hearts to bring us to our knees in repentance of our sin where we need to. Help us to entrust ourselves, humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. Remember anew your immense goodness to us and blessing to us through him. And God, we thank you that you promised to bless us and you've shown us you always keep your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.